This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Jessica Silby and I am a professor here at Suffolk Law School. I teach constitutional law and in the intellectual property concentration. This article was actually part of a larger symposium that Notre Dame hosted about a year ago on creativity in the law. And so a bunch of scholars and practitioners got together in a room for a day and presented their research on the relationship between legal regulation and promoting creativity. My article and the talk that I gave then is part of a much larger empirical project that I've been working on for several years where the basis of the research is interviews with scientists and artists broadly construed, so that's engineers as well as lab scientists, software programmers, and artists could be filmmakers, photographers, painters, sculptor artists, things like that. And I'm interviewing them as well as lawyers and their business agents or business managers or CEOs and companies, for example, having conversations with them about the work that they do and the role that intellectual property plays in their work. So I'll give you an example from two different fields. I've interviewed several sculptors, small-time sculptors, some very, very well-known sculptors, and asked them to tell me a little bit about how they became sculptors, what they were doing before, what they imagined being a sculptor was like, why they chose this field. I asked them how they make money at the work, what kind of living it is, what are some of the difficulties they come into when they're doing their work. Basically give me a picture of their professional life as a sculptor. I've also interviewed lawyers that represent sculptors, for example, represented artists, and asked them about what are some of the issues that come up in representation of sculptors, and getting the picture of the profession from the specific legal angle or business angle rather than the creative angle. And what I'm gleaning from that conversation is whether and how the intellectual property rights that are related to doing sculpture serve the purpose that we in the academy and folks in the legislative arena have traditionally said intellectual property law serves, that is to incentivize the production of art and science. That's the policy underlying the constitutional prerogative of intellectual property protection, copyrights and patents primarily. And I've long wondered whether that policy is being served in the way the laws are carried out and drafted today. What I'm learning, which is not going to be any surprise to folks who are in the business, but what I'm learning is that it depends and that there are some businesses. So my other example was going to be in a pharmaceutical company where I interviewed lab scientists. I interviewed in-house IP lawyers. I interviewed the financial officers of the pharmaceutical company, and I interviewed outside counsel to the pharmaceutical company. And in certain areas, intellectual property plays a much more dominant role than in others. And sometimes that role is we must have an exclusive right in order to invest a significant amount of money in a project or a process. We won't get investment in our research if the possibility of a patent, for example, is not there. But if you talk to the lab scientist, he or she is not in this business to get a patent. They're not in this business for exclusive rights. They're in this business because they have been 
enamored with science or biology particularly. They're in this business because they love their company, for example. They may be in this business for a whole host of reasons, and they do their work every day not because of the intellectual property legal regime that regulates it. So in every field, whether it's sculpture or pharmaceuticals or photography or software, different actors have different incentives. And intellectual property as the dominant motor for creativity and invention is not present across the board. It is actually much less present than the current popular cultural fascination with intellectual property as an entitlement that promotes innovation and creativity would lead us to believe. And one of the things I'm learning is that intellectual property has very diverse roles among the many creative and innovative fields. And therefore, one of the problems that scholars and legislators have identified is that the one-size-fits-all model of intellectual property, copyright, less so than patents, but both of them are sort of big statutes that cover broad ranges of things, and those things are so diverse that the one-size-fits-all model is really flawed. And so what we get is an overprotection of inventions and creative expressions, as well as an underprotection of inventions and creative expressions. We have a misfit between the laws as they are drafted and often enforced, and the work that is made and distributed. And I'll give you one example of that misfit. A musician that I interviewed, and I also interviewed her agent and her lawyer, a musician talks about how she makes her money as a musician performing gigs primarily, selling music at her concerts, and selling other merchandise at her concerts. And those are primarily the way she makes money. She has started making some money doing voiceovers and singing for commercials. She does not primarily make her money from downloads or selling the digital copies of her songs. Although she is making some money at that. That is part of how she makes her money. It is one piece of a larger puzzle. So that's one example of how intellectual property is not driving her business. It is not even the dominant form of her business, but it is a part of her business, and it's an important part. Now, how is it important for her? She cares a lot about attribution. She cares that people, if they're going to play her songs, that they know they're her songs. Copyright doesn't provide attribution rights. And so the right that she wants to control, which is to be credited, isn't part of the intellectual property system. So there is an under-protection in that way. That is, she wants something that the law doesn't provide. She also doesn't mind if people rip her stuff. If people are going to share it and she's going to get better known because they're going to share her stuff. She's thrilled with that. But she'll also say, I don't want everyone doing that because I need to make some money from my distribution and copying of music. But if there's a balance, then that's okay. So there's an overprotection. She's frustrated by the overprotection of the digital music industry preventing the ripping of DVDs, for example, because it prevents widespread distribution of work that she would really like to be distributed so that she gets more acknowledgement and more renown in the field. So there's an example of the law doesn't fit her desires and her business model. Her agent is totally on board with this. So the person who makes money off 
her clients. The agent makes money off this singer and songwriter's business. You would think she wants to maximize the profits that this singer-songwriter is making. But she says, no, I totally agree. We have to find a balance between sharing the stuff and getting it out there as fast and as furiously and correctly as possible and making a profit to continue doing what we're doing. And intellectual property sometimes frustrates that goal and sometimes enables that goal. And if we were going to be protecting the intellectual property in the songs as closely as the law allows, we would be frustrating it more than promoting the creativity. So that's one example of the misfit. And there are many, many others in the project that I'm working on. This article is only about one or two examples of that. It's about incentivizing the beginnings of work and going to work every day, what gets you to work every day. And intellectual property actually plays no discernible role in the beginning of creativity and innovation and doing the labor. What I'm finding in my larger book project as I'm crunching all the data is that intellectual property plays a much more robust role in managing profit margins, for example, which is more important in some businesses than in others, and in distribution mechanisms. So that'll be the conclusion of the book, that intellectual property plays many roles and the one-size-fits-all approach is deeply flawed. This article, which is an overview of the first two chapters of the book, which will be published by Stanford University Press next year, is in the Notre Dame Law Review, volume 86, number 5. And as I said, it's a symposium volume with lots of great articles in it, all about the role of creativity. My article starts on page 2091. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.